0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get to work. Ruth chapter 4 is where we are today. If you have a Bible, uh, I'd really encourage you to follow along. That's the 8th book of the Old Testament. We've been working our way through it for the past uh, four weeks. This will be our fourth week. We're finishing up the book today. Lord willing and if you don't have a Bible with you uh, and maybe you're not yet a Christian you're just kinda here checking things out or maybe you're very new to the faith and you don't have a Bible yet there should be a Bible in front of you underneath the chair in front of you or every other one and uh, we would love for you to use that Bible today and then also to take that Bible home and just keep it for yourself and begin to read it and it would really be helpful for you in fact not just today but every Sunday, and as we preach, we, we just work our way through passages of Scripture. So we're going to be in Ruth 4 today, and if you're using one of those Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, you can find that on page 156. Well, we've been working our way through this beautiful book, and so if you've missed the last few weeks or, or today's your first day here today, let me just kind of give you a, a brief summary of, of the story that we've been reading up to this point. Um, Oh, before I do that, let me just mention what we're going to go to next. Uh, We're going to get into Ephesians, the New Testament letter. beautiful six chapters, kind of midway through the New Testament. One of the most theologically uh, rich books in the New Testament, written with great warmth and clarity, and also written to a group of people that are making up a local church. And so it's especially applicable to us to take this great news of the gospel, and then see how that comes to bear on us as a local group of believers trying to live together in a, in a dark world. And so we're going to start that in a couple weeks. next few weeks after we finish Ruth today, we're going to do just a couple individual sermons on some specific issues, and then we'll, we'll launch into Ephesians, and we'll be in Ephesians for, for likely a, a good while. And so you can begin to read that on yourself, by yourself and familiarize yourself with that beautiful letter. But today we find ourselves at the end of this study in Ruth that we've been doing that we really entitled, A Story of God's Providence. And in the beginning of this book that we've been looking at, there's this beautiful love story that, that comes to us through a, a rather obscure family that really isn't from the you know, great halls of faith and notable people in the Old Testament, but just this one particular family that is set in this time of Judges, which is a time, Judges is the book that precedes Ruth, and Judges is a time of great sin, and uh, where everybody, the book of Judges ends with this one sentence that it was a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There wasn't really a clear leader established in Israel at the time. God would, uh, would, would bring a judge to authority that would be used for a time for righteousness, but then that judge would maybe have some imperfection and failings and then they'd fall another judge would come and just a cycle of sin and rebellion and return to God's ways and then another fall and sin. And so this is where the people of Israel are in this timeline of God's redemption of them in the Old Testament. And we get a sort of snapshot of this one particular family in Ruth, where there's this man named Elimelech who has a a wife named Naomi and two sons. And there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem, the land of Judah, the promised land. And they left that place to go in search for food, really. And they went to this place called Moab which was this noted antagonist, an enemy of Israel in the Old Testament. And so Elimelech took his wife and sons to this, this country of Moab. And there his two sons married two Moabitess women, which would have been uh, not a good thing at that time for a Jewish young man to marry a Moabite woman. And so uh, then we find that this Elimelech, this patriarch, dies. And uh, not only does he die but his two sons die and neither of his two sons had had any children at this point so in chapter one it's really sets this sort of very difficult circumstance where you have these three widows this jewish mother-in-law widow with her two moabitess widowed daughter-in-laws and that's how chapter one really ends with this really bitter difficult trial and now Naomi decides to go back to her native land of Bethlehem to Judah to the promised land and she encourages her two daughter-in-laws to stay there in their native land. One of them does stay, Orpah, she stays, but one of them, Ruth, decides to make the God of Israel, the God of this bitter mother-in-law, the God of her deceased husband and the God of her deceased father-in-law, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. She decides through God's grace to make him her God and to follow her bitter, less than encouraging, Mother in law back to Bethlehem. And that's how chapter one ends. And then chapter two, we see this young widow just kind of pick up and get to work and start to work in a field to gather food. And she just so happens to find herself in the field of this man named Boaz, who happens to be a relative of this deceased man, Elimelech. And so uh, Ruth chapter two sort of ends with this family, Naomi, this bitter mother in law, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, being provided for very generously by this relative, Boaz. And we see sort of the fortunes beginning to change and Ruth starting to sense that, hey, maybe God is wanting to give us more than just food. Maybe He's also going to give us a family because there's this notion, there was this, this stipulation in Mosaic Law in the Old Testament that the nearest relative would, was encouraged to redeem the property or to buy back the property that uh, a widow had maybe lost or a brother had lost and also to redeem the family by marrying the widow of of a Jewish man who had died and so there's this possibility that this this man could be a sort of rescuer of the fortunes of this family and so Naomi concocts a rather uh, sketchy plan For Ruth to go and uh, to sort of make herself uh, uh, known to Boaz in the middle of the night on the threshing floor. She does that. Um, We got through that PG-13 rated message last week. And Boaz in his nobility doesn't take advantage of Ruth. But he actually in great righteousness says, yes, I want to redeem you and your family. But there's actually a relative who's closer than me. And so we've got to do this right here. We can't just do this on the sly. We've got to bring this before the, 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 the elders of the city and, and do this right. And let this nearer relative have a chance to be the Redeemer before I am the Redeemer. And that's how chapter 3 ends. We just think that everything's going to just happen just the way we want it to. But then there's this sort of, uh, you know, less than convenient righteousness by Boaz, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 4. So we're going to read through chapter 4, and then we uh, are going to settle down on just a few points that I think that chapter 4 teaches us, and really the whole book of Ruth teaches us. And then after that, we're going to receive communion together as a family, and it's our custom on the first Sunday of the month to receive communion together. Communion represents the, the broken body and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus that Christians have been receiving together as a remembrance of Jesus' work on the cross, uh, really since since his work on the cross. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you are welcome to receive this communion meal with us as fellow believers in Jesus after the message. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you're still trying to figure out Christianity, um, we'd really encourage you not to receive communion today, and there's no shame in that. There's no uh, sort of scorn or no embarrassment, we as a family, members of Crosspoint and other Christians that are visiting with us today, are going to remember this meal and really, really kind of focus our hearts on what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so if that hasn't become real to you yet, um, we'd ask for you to kind of respect this meal as being something that Christians do. But maybe today, even as we work through chapter four, God would give you faith in Jesus and you would turn from your sins you would turn from self-righteousness. You would turn from just sort of the malaise of, of self-absorption that grips us in our culture today. And even today, friends, I have been praying, and we'll pray in just a moment, that some of you today will turn and trust in Jesus, that our sovereign God will give you the gifts of repentance and faith so that you can breathe new life in Christ. Maybe that's you today. I am certain that there are people in this room today that do not yet know Jesus, and I am certain that it is God's good and gracious desire to give you new life in Jesus. So maybe today you might receive your first communion meal with us as a body of believers. Let me pray, and then we'll read Ruth chapter 4. Father, we thank you for this beautiful book that we've been working through these past four weeks. As Jesus said to his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, as he explained to them about himself and his work from the Old Testament, we know that Ruth is not just about the change of fortune of one family. It's not just about how you sovereignly, providentially control famine and and harvests and the wombs of barren women but it is most prominently about how you redeem your people through Christ's work on the cross and so Lord would you help us today would you help the Christians who have trusted in Jesus in this room would you stir our affections God would you break us out of our little spiritual ditches that we get in as we hear the good news of the gospel today. Would you warm our hearts with affection and a new sense of awe and wonder at the glorious work of Jesus on the cross? Lord, would you do that for me today? Would you blow afresh your spirit through this dusty temple? And would I see Christ afresh? And Lord, for my friends that are in this room who do not yet know Jesus, many of whom probably think they do, but they don't because they just have a profession or a confession or words that they've spoken and there's no real fruit to bear out their faith. Lord, would you be so kind as to cause them to go from death to life, from religion that is dead. To a living faith that is alive. And would you blow away the scales from their eyes so that they would see Jesus and trust in him today? I pray you do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate. And sat down there. Remember, chapter three ended with this scene in the middle of the night at the threshing floor, where Boaz uh, says, "Now, okay, as tempting as this is, um, I'm gonna—we're uh, gonna do this right here, and we're—we're we're, we're not just gonna consummate this relationship here. We're gonna—we're gonna—we're gonna do this right, and go before the elders of the city, and go to this nearer relative, and see if he will be the redeemer." of this family. And so now the next morning, Boaz has gotten up from the gate, sat down there at the city gate, which was kind of functioned as a sort of, almost kind of a place where they transacted business, kind of like a courtroom in a sense. And behold the Redeemer, this other closer relative of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside friend, sit down here. Now there's something very important there in that word friend, That word friend in the Hebrew language that this was written in uh, really means kind of like Mr. So-and-so is how most commentators really uh, translate it more literally. It's really intended to sort of make this man anonymous for a very specific reason that we'll get to in a second. But it's not really a term of endearment. The writer is making a statement that will... we'll think about in just a second about this guy. So it's, it's a little bit of a pejorative term. It's kind of like, hey, hey, big guy, come here. Come on over here. Hey, you. Hey, champ. Hey, so-and-so, come on over here. Let's sit down. That's, that's, the, that's the feeling that we have here in these words. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz has very intentionally orchestrated this meeting here at the gate with this near redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, and with these ten elders that sort of form a quorum uh, whereby this business can be officially transacted. So they sat down. Verse 3, the, those of you, I know we have several real estate agents in the, the congregation. This, this, is, this is like you know, the lawyer's office right here where they're, they're signing the contract, so to speak. They're going to negotiate terms. I bet you've never had something like this happen at the gates of Columbus, the city limits. Hey, you, come here. Let me bring ten guys, elders of the city. Let's get this done. Verse 3. Then he said said to uh, the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say... Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I will come after you. And so at this point, we're thinking, oh, come on, we've been building up to this moment where there's this noble, righteous character named Boaz who we just know would be a, Perfect fit for Ruth, right? And and come on, I mean, we do, it just seems like it would be so compatible. And and then we we actually got through this sort of sketchy, shady scheme by Naomi in chapter three. I mean, we weathered that storm without any you know disqualifying actions. And and now, I mean, come on, Boaz, really? Did you have to do it this way? I mean, really? Couldn't you have just not even mentioned this and? And then you're, it seems like you're almost trying to convince this guy of why he should... Bu- Boaz, you are blowing the plan. Boaz, come on, brother. Be a little bit more... I mean, is that your best game? Is that all you got? And this man said, this near relative, he said, I will redeem it. And so at this moment, just the air is let out of the balloon. You know, we are just oh, I mean, really, let's not even think about the, the providential aspects of what is going on behind the scenes, which is the bigger picture of Ruth, but I mean, just, just even if we can condense it and just sort of isolate it down to just the, the aspects of the love story that's going on here in this, I mean, this is disappointing, is it not? I mean, but Bo, Bo, Boaz, seriously, bro, did you have to sell it quite that good? And then, all of a sudden, this other guy, Mr. So-and-so, who doesn't even get named, arrives on the scene just out of nowhere at the beginning of chapter 4. And it just seems like, it seems like our plans are about to take a left turn, and he's going to redeem it. And Although, I guess maybe he has the means to do it, and it'll work out with, for Naomi and Ruth, and they won't be vulnerable, and now they get to eat. But, I mean, come on, really? This other guy? That will be so unsatisfying. Verse 5. But Boaz, my man, has a little bit more than we thought he did at the end of chapter verse 4. He says, oh, yeah, yeah. And then Boaz said, oh, by the way, that's not in there. I just threw that in there. <laughs> the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So what's going on here? Why all of a sudden change uh, in, in this near relative's mind? Well, uh, what's going on here is really he's displaying kind of his motivation and his character is contrasted to Boaz. So, so at the first level of Boaz's presentation to this man, he's saying, hey, here's, here's Naomi, right? She is this widow who has this land and now remember we read in verse 3 where it says that she's going to sell the land uh, most of the commentators think that's a, that's a kind of a that's a difficult thing to think about there because maybe the land had already been sold and she probably was likely the case when Elimelech left Elimelech would have sold the land um, to somebody else and now maybe Naomi uh, has the right has the because it was her husband 's land she has the right to the the produce of the land and so she 's selling the produce of the land and really ultimately she needs to have somebody redeem that for her and there was this stipulation as I mentioned in the Old Testament in uh, Leviticus chapter twenty five where if a relative a brother lost his land because uh, of just bad management or uh, maybe he died or maybe he uh, just became poor and had to sell his land as, as a, a, a sort of you know, mortgage his land. There was this this, this stipulation in the Mosaic law where the the brother, or the nearest male relative, would buy back that land and, and, and then give it back to that brother and so that's what's going on here but this man has died and so so now this man kinda of sees it as, a, as really a potentially positive business transaction. In one sense he'd have to put up the money to buy the land. So there's some initial expense there. But I think probably pragmatically he's thinking, well, I, mean, I, could, I have to buy the land. So there's an initial expense there, which certainly it seems he's capable of doing because he said he would do it. But then he's also thinking about the potential benefits of having the land because then he would have more land. And then he gets this widow Naomi who's you know past childbearing age and so he doesn't have necessarily any responsibility to to father a child with her but he's got you know another helper around the house and and so really at the first level there of Boaz's presentation this redeemer seems to be attracted to this idea because it's kind of like he's gathering real estate this is a good investment you know I'm gonna have to shell out a little bit right now but this is gonna produce something so on that level he's making a decision that is just based on what seems to be common good sense. But then Boaz sort of throws the kicker. Oh, yes, but by the way, have you considered? He just kind of gets the guy prime thinking this is what it's all about. And then he throws in this other little thing. Oh, yes, and there's also this Moabitess daughter-in-law who's of childbearing age, who's a widow. And so if you, if you buy this land, you also get her. And so that would also then include this other stipulation in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy, that was this idea of what was called Leverite marriage. Now, that Leverite is a Latin word that now has been added on just to look at this concept in the Old Testament. But this Leverite marriage where when a brother would pass away and he would have a widow and he did not have any male heir, that the brother or nearest male relative was encouraged to marry that widow so that this male relative, this deceased man, would have his family name continue. Why was this so important? It's critical for us to grasp how important it was for a Jewish man to have a living heir to carry on the ownership of his property and his name. So in their mindset, the loss of an heir, the loss of land, and the loss of a male heir amounted to personal annihilation. You were blotted out from the record of God's people. And so it was very serious. You, you in a sense, in, in their mindset, ceased to exist. And so this idea of maintaining the family land and maintaining a male heir to work that land and produce that land and have that land be a blessing to really the nations was extremely important in this culture. And so... What's going on now is Boaz is saying to this near relative, uh, you don't just get this land, see, you get this widow who you then need to produce a male heir with. And if she has this child, then this child grows up to continue on his the name of her her dead husband, Malon. So so what really, in a sense, you're sort of spending money to buy this property, getting this widow to perpetuate somebody else's name, right? So all of a sudden, it becomes sort of less attractive. Oh, Ultimately, the benefits of this are going to go to some other guy's name. In fact, he says that. He says, I I can't redeem this for myself now that you throw Ruth in there, lest I impair my own inheritance. Because maybe he had some other male sons with his previous wife or the wife that he had now. And so now he's got to split up. He's like, oh, I don't really want to get in. I don't want to just do the work and, you know, go to all these you know, soccer games for this kid and pay for his braces and this little snotty-nosed kid, and then he's going to grow up and he's going to take the land that I bought. I mean, I don't want to do that. I mean, if it was just the land and this grandma to help sweep up the house, okay, but now that you're putting this kid in the mix, I don't think I want to do it. And oh, by the way, that daughter-in-law a Moabitess, and we know about those dirty pagan pork-eating Moabites. And so, he says, I can't do it. Take my right of redemption for yourself. There's a couple things I want you to notice here in these first six verses. Just notice the anonymity of Mr. So-and-so. To not be named in the Bible in a situation, in a narrative like this, sends a clear message that this man is not somebody to be emulated. Notice a few points about Boaz as well. Notice his ill-timed righteousness, you know, in a sense. John Piper in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, that we have for sale in the Resource Center uh, about the book of Ruth, uh, has a little, a little uh, page or two on this. Just this, you know, righteousness sometimes comes in what seem to us the, the most inopportune moments. God, really, are you requiring me to be righteous in this moment? Couldn't I just, can I just cut this little corner here? Couldn't, are we just tempted? in the most inopportune moments to fudge it a little bit, but Boaz doesn't notice that. But even in his seemingly inconvenient righteousness, he also displays this amazing shrewdness where he uses God's wisdom and introduces this final little detail that sends the deal his way. And then notice the contrast between Boaz's concern and Mr. So-and-so's concern. Boaz was displaying a sort of picture of God's covenantal, selfless love. What we talked about last week, this chesed, this steadfast, unfailing love. It was concerned about not himself, but others. So Boaz is a picture of this, whereas Mr. So-and-so is a picture of sort of selfishness and really trying to protect his own name. All right, notice those things. Let's keep reading in verse 7. So we have this redeemer who said, No, I won't do it. Take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now we've got to sign the papers here. And this is how they did it in verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel, that seems kind of strange if you've ever bought a house. I don't think you probably in the lawyer's office ever took up your shoe, put it on the table, traded shoes. That would be awkward. But what, why is this happening here? It's probably um, very likely uh, it's a statement that, uh, that the land that this shoe has walked on is now yours. And so when somebody would acquire property as a sort of sign, uh, really that where, your, where your feet tread had such significance for the Jews in the Old Testament kind of like where you know the beginning of Joshua where God tells them, wherever your foot shall tread I will give you and so this became a way of sort of signifying ownership of a property wherever their feet tread so when a man would acquire property he would walk that property with his feet as a symbol of him owning that property and then when he would give that sandal or shoe to somebody that he was selling that property to this was the sort of way of ratifying that transaction verse 8 so when the Redeemer said to Boaz Buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Melon. Those were the two sons that died as well with Elimelech in Moab in, in Moab. in verse 10, Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord, listen to these words now, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be, be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All right, a couple things I want you to notice before we continue on in verse 13. Notice the change in Naomi's circumstances from the end of Ruth 1, right? I mean, she is the bitter Sarcastic, you know, Jewish, just mother in law who's had just the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says at the end of chapter one. She says, I left this place full, which she didn't really. I mean, the whole reason she went from Bethlehem is because there was a famine, but she says in her own mind, I left this place full, and now the Lord has brought me back empty. And now, just notice the change of fortune. Naomi comes back, and she's empty and bitter, and the whole town is asking, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweetness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. And now just a couple chapters later, we have this Redeemer Boaz bringing security and stability to her family. Notice the change in Ruth's status as well. Think, think about this now. In verse, uh, chapter 1, we have this Ruth the Moabitess. And in verse 10 here of chapter 4, he mentions it again, Ruth the Moabite. One of these dirty Moabites who were longtime antagonists to the people of God. And now she becomes the wife of Boaz, and now these people that were gathered around who sort of broke out in this chant affirming this transaction now are taking this Moabitess and lumping her in with these matriarchs of, of the Jewish culture, Rachel and Leah, that we read about in Genesis, that become matriarchs of Israel. I mean, just, just notice the change in Ruth's status. She's gone from being a dirty Moabitess to in this same sentence with these, with these women that hold such high esteem in Israel's past. Well, let's keep going. Verse 13. Very quickly, things just kind of get down to business here. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Remember that she had been barren for a decade in Ruth chapter 1. And there's probably great thought in the Jewish mind that's reading this book that that barrenness had been God's hand really against this family. Maybe for the disobedience of Elimelech and even leaving Judah in the first place. Maybe the disobedience of these two sons and even marrying these Moabitess women. Regardless of the reason why, they're barren. And now we see this this hand of the Lord in verse 13 bringing life to her womb. And let me just pause here and say that I just know that there are couples in this church who are uh, wrestling with issues of infertility. And I just, wanna, just wanna, I want you to see this. The hope that is in those words. The Lord gave her conception. Brothers and sisters, if you are a young couple wrestling with infertility, this verse lifts our eyes to give us hope that conception is not merely in the hands of the expertise of a fertility doctor. Thank God for the common grace and the gift of modern medicine. But the Lord in his kind providence is the one who gives life. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Verse 14 Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And listen to this. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. That's sort of confusing, isn't it? I mean, when, when we're talking about the Redeemer here, they're breaking out in this... Song here, blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a redeemer. Thinking Boaz, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more important is better than you than seven sons. She has given birth to him who's the redeemer. So already we know that this this story, if you haven't clued in with it yet, is pointing to something beyond just this one family and just this one man. Boaz, this pointing to a redemption that goes far beyond just this circumstance. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child. Yeah. She kind of inserts herself there pretty quickly, doesn't she? <laughs> mother in law. I yeah, just had a baby. Then mother in law took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Isn't that interesting? God is coming back around. God is circling back around. Think of all the levels of implication here. Here's this Moabitess woman who now becomes part of this Jewish family. But then also think about God's heart for his people, the Jews. He's taken this bitter, angry mother-in-law who thought all the hand of God was against her and all her fortunes were down. And now the text says that a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David, who becomes King David. And if you are good at flipping quickly, go to Matthew chapter 1, the first gospel, Matthew chapter 1, and see how the last few verses of Ruth sort of put the ball on the tee to show you where this story has been going all along. That King David, that this Moabitess woman becomes the grandmother of the great Jewish King David, who isn't just a king in his own right, but is in a sense a prefigure, a shadow of the great king to come, King Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 1, we see where this genealogy is ultimately going in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. We're starting to recognize these names. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the, fa- Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then skip down to verse 17, or verse uh, 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. This line continues, generation of generation after Obed, to this man named Jacob, who becomes the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. I mean, if there was ever the ending of a series, <laughs> I mean, uh, this whole time, you know, just think about it, if you were reading this for the first time as a, as a Jewish reader or as a first century convert to Christianity and you're reading this story about this Moabitess woman and you're kind of, oh, well just, okay, God can provide and you know, God sort of, he's in control of the seasons and he can, he can bring fertility and boy, this Boaz sure is a righteous character and you're just kind of reading it for the first time, and you kind of get to the end, and you're starting to doze off at your bed with your nightstand there, and all of a sudden, this story just jerks you out of just these few years, and it lifts your eyes to Christ, to Christ, and all of a sudden at the end, there's just the greatest of all endings, that this story hasn't ultimately been about one widow or a mother-in-law, it's been about Jesus all along. So what are some things we can loon, learn from Ruth for? And really on a bigger scale, the whole story of Ruth for just a few things, a few points here. The first is that God is intricately involved in the lives of his people, working for their good and his glory. God is intricately involved in the lives of his people, working for their good and his glory. Think about this for just a second. This is a very ordinary set of events. There's these huge stories in the Old Testament. Paul referenced them, or one of them, earlier today in the song that we sang, the parting of the Red Sea, these miraculous events. But, but do you notice just the ordinariness of the story of Ruth? There's really no miraculous events. It's just really the detailing of relatively, relatively simple lives. The main character is this Moabitess woman who lost her husband, worked hard in a field, followed some sketchy advice from her mother-in-law, and had a baby. That's basically all she did. This should teach us that our regular, ordinary lives are about something much bigger. Because see, most of us live lives like Ruth, not like Moses or Joshua. I mean, our lives are ordinary. They're just, just kind of just anonymous, nondescript, relatively unexciting things that happen to us on a daily basis. It's not that means that if we all kind of be faithful to God, eventually we're going to get to be in the genealogy of some you know, great person. It's just to encourage us that God uses these regular, ordinary lives. To bring about his great purposes. It gives us this picture of a biblical view of God's providence, his, his transcendence. In other words, his bigness that God is beyond us. He's huge. He's, 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 he's everywhere all the time. There's no limit to God. But it also gives us this picture of God's imminence, his nearness. He's, he's far and near. He's big and small. He's, he's in every aspect of our lives, and I think this is even, maybe even more difficult for us to really grab in our age, maybe than it even was for these Old Testament believers who were closer to these miraculous acts, or who were culturally more a people of God, and God would have been on their consciousness more than He is on the average American mind, where we just sort of have reduced our lives to some sort of post-industrial sort of work, where we just kind of just get what you can in this life, and 7 billion people on the planet and you know you watch the news in Washington DC and the people who seem to be in control are so far removed it seems and how can my little life affect anything? I'm just kind of a blue collar guy working in a mill town. My daddy worked in Bib City and now I'm just kind of punching a ticket at one of the, I mean how do we how do we see guys providence in our lives. How, how, what is the story of Ruth trying to teach us? Is it, it's trying to teach us that, that God is a God who's intricately involved in every aspect of the lives of his people, and this should bring forth great confidence and encouragement for his people. There's this, uh, there's this old catechism written in the mid-1500s. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism, and it was written by some German reformers, mid-1500s, Aside from the Bible, it's one of the texts, one of the bodies of literature that's been used most by Protestants in the past 500 years, the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're a Protestant, maybe you grew up as a good little Baptist kid in the South, and you get scared by the word catechism because you think it's a Catholic word, relax. all right. Catechism is a Christian word, it just means body of instruction. And although most Americans don't realize, Protestants have them too. And it would be a good thing for us to recapture because it's something for us to learn. I mean, we learn our truths from, you know, contemporary Christian music, not from the Bible. And so, so and that's not a good thing, by the way. All right, I'm getting off track. Uh, but catechisms are just a sort of uh, a systematizing of Christian truth. And the reformers, Luther and Calvin and these Heidelberg uh, reformers, wrote these catechisms. In fact, on a just little side note, we're trying to come up with a catechism for parents here to work through with their children. In fact, Wayne Shealy just came up with a wonderful catechism that's sort of an adaptation of some of these Reformers catechisms, Puritan catechisms, uh, with kind of some of the Baptist... uh, 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 reformers as well. And we are, have come up with a, a, a catechism for children that parents can work through, and we're going to publish that online. They went through it in the class they did a couple of weeks ago. Excellent, excellent stuff. But this is the Heidelberg Catechism, and this is what it says about just this intricacy of God dealing in the lives of his people. Question 27. It's in question and answer format. Question 27. Just listen to the beauty and the truth of this language. It just comes from scripture. It's not just some guy writing it founded on scripture. Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty poverty all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand and then question 28 gives us the answers to why this is important question 28 how does the knowledge of god's creation and providence help us it means that we can be patient when things go against us thankful when things go well and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, neither can they be moved nor be moved. Friends, those are comforting words, but don't believe it because some cats in Heidelberg, Germany 500 years ago came up with a pretty good confession. Believe it because it's bleeding with biblical truth. This is what The Bible says, Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Every one of our days was written in God's book before one of them came to be. Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 29 and 30, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. There's not a bird that falls to the ground on a distant hillside that human eyes have never seen apart from the will of God. Acts t- 17 and Paul's... Sermon on Mars Hill, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way toward Him and find Him. Friends, do, are you, that means that you are here in Columbus, Georgia right now because of the providence of God. You are where you are. You're at that job. You're, you're in relationship with that person. You're at this church. You're, you're, you're the son or daughter of that family because of God's kind providence so that in His providence, you might come to a place in your life where you will long for God. This famine happened. Even the sinful reaction to the famine of the family of Elimelech happened to bring about God's providential kindness so that this family would see a stunning display of God's providence in their lives. Friends, do you see that your life is not unconnected? It's not it's not just sort of floating around out there being governed by the laws of mother nature or karma. There is a sovereign creator of the universe who guides all things. Romans 8, He works all things. That's everything. That's tragedy. That's despair. That's sickness. That's discouragement. That's everything. That's sin. That's sin against. He works everything everything in a mysterious way, not being culpable for sin, but being sovereign over even sin and despair and tragedy, working it together for the good of his people to the praise of his glorious grace. Friends, in a world that seems random and arbitrary, friends, that is a comfort that the Bible gives Christians that we need to hold on to, hold on to in the middle of the storm. God intricately is involved in the lives of his people working everything from tragedy to triumph for their good and his glory. Second point, this this then leads us into this beautiful truth that God delights in redeeming unlikely people and using them for his purposes. Friends, it's hard for us to really capture the stark nature of Ruth's inclusion here, but she was a Moabite. Moabites were these enemies of God's people. And in fact, in Numbers 25, we've talked about it a few times here these last few weeks, in Numbers 25, these loose Moabite women seduced these Jewish men in Numbers chapter 25 and led them into this false worship, which aroused God's anger, and he sent a plague to kill 24,000 of his people. I mean, friends, that's not a felt board just Sunday school story. That that actually happened. God was angry at the seduction of his people by these Moabitess women, and he killed, sent a plague to kill 24,000 people. And so can, can, we just, can we just say that, you know, maybe if you had a son or a daughter back in those days, it wouldn't be the best thing in the world for them to marry a Moabitess. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, brother. But yet, God in His kindness works it out so that a Moabitess is in the line of Jesus. Friends, this is a a stunning picture of God's scandalous grace. Ruth is a nondescript widow who who comes from this line of people who have no business being included in the people of God, but she's Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. What does this tell us? It tells us that God delights in redeeming people who, from our vantage point, no way they should be God's people. No way, man. No way. No way. Is that you to any friend? Is that the lie that you've bought into? No, no. God delights in redeeming unlikely people. There's two traps that we fall into here. Some of us just don't, we don't feel that. We don't feel like we're unlikely people because we kind of grown up in comfort and maybe Christian heritage. And what we need to do there is we need to humble ourselves and we need to read and chew First Corinthians chapter 1 where it says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise and noble. God chose what is weak in this world to confound the wise. And so if you are wealthy and you grew up in a Christian home and everything's kind of been fine for you and you aren't an unlikely candidate, you're just, you're just born and bred Christian, then you need to realize it was a kind hand of providence that even made you be born into that. And God, maybe even right now, telling you to be careful about leaning on heritage, rather on Christ and His sovereign grace. Don't just assume that you're a Christian just because mom and dad got bulletins from First Baptist or Second Methodist or Third Presbyterian. You are a Christian because of the sovereign grace of God. And if you, if you, believe, if you think that you are, you're damaged goods, that you've given your life away to all sorts of false gods, and you've believed the lie that God can't redeem you, friends. The book of Ruth is written for you. God redeems. God reaches into the deep, dark crevices of Moab. His arm is not too short to save. His ear is not dull. He delights in saving incredibly unlikely people because he gets so much glory out of it, friends. By the way, this gives great hope for our loved ones who are far from God. And so when you're praying for God to save your lost son or daughter or dad or mom or grandchild, friends, don't pray that they will exercise their will to choose God. Plead to a sovereign God who has the ability to make dead hearts alive that's what he does he delights in doing that that gives great hope and finally thirdly quickly the story of Ruth ultimately points to eternal, eternal redemption in Christ Jesus see we've, we've had this sense all along that this story is pointing to something outside of itself it's pointing to something outside of just Boaz's physical redemption of Naomi and Ruth it's pointing to something outside of just this little baby Obed. And we find at the end these past few verses that it's actually pointing to something outside of even just King David. It's pointing to Jesus. The message of Ruth is not that God in his kindness just physically redeems this family. But it's meant to be a picture of the eternal redemption. Boaz is meant to be a sort of imperfect, just sort of shadow of the true Redeemer that secures our eternal redemption in Christ Jesus. The fields of our life, the produce of our life has been sold away by our own choice into sin. And we have no hope of bearing fruit from our fields anymore. We have no hope of being worthwhile anymore, but Jesus, by his work on the cross, buys back our very lives and redeems them. That's the message of Ruth. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 17 through 20. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Listen to this. Knowing that you were ransomed, redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, the story of Ruth is not about the silver or gold exchange at the gates of a city of just the redemption of property and two widows. It's about the eternal redemption of our souls. It's been bought with the blood of Christ on the cross. Do you see that? If you're a Christian, does that melt your heart afresh? Do you see how God wants to use you? He doesn't want to so much... you. I mean, look, there's... there's Bible studies to go to. There's doctrinal and scriptural knowledge to accumulate. There's good works to do. I mean, Ephesians 2.10 that we're going to read in a few weeks talks about how we've been saved by God for the display of these works. But do you realize God's intent is to just make us so in love with what Jesus has done that we just become sort of this bubbling over canister of love that becomes an aroma of Christ to the world. So if you're a Christian, don't just get to this and say, oh Brad, well that was a nice little connection there. How this kind of led to this thing that is this doctrinal point about redemption. Oh, that's really good. I'll bring that up in a Bible study that I'm gonna do. Friends, if that if it just becomes kind of a dry little doctrinal point. Oh yeah, I now see how the Old Testament is connected to the New Testament. Well golly gee, let's go to lunch. Where are you gonna I mean come on, friends. This should stir our hearts. This should warm us. We should we should we should Not neglect so great a salvation, as Hebrews says. This should warm our hearts. This should humble, proud people. This should stir tired hearts. This should produce an affection in our hearts for Jesus. This should bring tears, man. When you hear the gospel preached, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years, this should warm your life and your heart. And what that does is you become more attractive. You become more useful. You become something that God uses as an aroma of Christ. To a world that wants to be in love with something, but is in love with all of the wrong things, friends. Do you see that? So Christian, let the story of Ruth stir your affections for Jesus. And if you're not, if you're not a Christian friend, look, I, don't, I can't persuade you. I can't say the right words. I can't come up. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not witty enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not gifted enough. But the sovereign grace of God right now, for some of you, that he is saving is giving you eyes of faith so that you can see Jesus. I'm not asking you to do anything, friends. I'm not asking you to justify yourself by saying, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, I think I can fit in this mug. Brad has convinced me that I can make it in, right? Yeah, that was a mug. No, friends, I'm saying that God in his kindness gives the gift Of faith, so that you can see Jesus. And when you truly see Jesus, he becomes preferable. You want him more than sin, you want him more than self absorption. Yes, you may still struggle with those things, but friends, to be a Christian is to have your heart set in love with Jesus, who alone is sufficient. And friends, if that's you right now, you don't need to repeat a prayer or sign a card or come to a class. Look, To Jesus, right now, look to him, friends. I don't care if you've been a member of this church or a member of some other church. God, in his kindness, may be showing you right now that you didn't truly know him when you walked into this room. And right now, he's giving you the gift of faith and repentance. Turn from your lesser loves, your broken loves, and look to Jesus, who alone is worthy of your love. Do it right now, friends, right now. Right now, do it. Just look to him, he is all together lovely. And just even in your own heart say, Jesus, I trust you. I'm putting all of my hope in you, I love you. Forgive me, redeem me, ransom me from my futile ways. Friends, if you're doing that even now, God has made you alive. God has made you alive. And you are welcome along with these other believers in Jesus to come receive this meal with us. Where we remember that moment when we were bought with a price. Ushers, uh, ushers, if you'd come forward to help us with communion. Let's pray. Oh, Father Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for redeeming us with the most valuable price of Jesus. in his work on the cross. Lord, as we prepare to receive this meal, would you stir our hearts with affection for Jesus? And would you give the gift of new life to hearts that were dead when they walked in this room? To the praise of your glorious grace and for the joy of your people. God, would you do this? Would you do this, please? Do it. Even now, friend, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And Lord, as we come around this table, may we remember Jesus' work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, that even now he is at your right hand, interceding for us, working all things together for our good and your glory. And would we also examine our lives in light of that great work of Christ, in light of the resurrection. God, help us to do that as your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand. Middle section, this is uh, your... Section right here in outside aisles, Just beginning with their first rows, you're welcome to go and receive.